Welcome to the CXR channel, our premier podcast for talent acquisition and talent management. Listen in as the CXR community discusses a wide range of topics focused on attracting, engaging, and retaining the best talent. We're glad you're here. Let's jump right in. So, um, okay. uh, so, so, that, so for those who don't know you, let's, let's just do a quick, I like to ask our guests to do, um, here on the CXR podcast, do an escalator pitch of who they are and why anybody should sort of be paying attention uh, to what they have to say, their opinion. So can you give us kind of a quick overview of kind of who you are and a little bit of your history? You've done some writing for Workforce Magazine. You do some writing. I picked you up on, uh, really hit my radar for uh, TLNT and ERE, but why, why don't you tell everybody kind of a little bit about yourself? Sure. Thank you so much, Chris. And thank you so much for inviting me to, to chat with you today. It's really a pleasure to, to talk with you again and sort of indirectly meet your members. Um, so sort of the way I describe my work is that I help heal what ails us through creativity, heart, and insight. So I am the principal owner and founder of a company called Words, Wisdom, and Wellness. And I identify as a writer, wisdom coach, and wellness warrior. What does that mean? That means that I publish and write essays, articles, and poems. I'm a published poet and performance poet. I do transformational life and leadership coaching, and I also do trauma-informed, body-focused stress management work, and oftentimes that dovetails with the coaching. I'm also a former and recovered workplace wizard, which is part of what we'll talk about today. So I come from a 30-year career, mostly in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space with some organizational development and leadership development thrown in. So... um, if that's if, if any of that tickles anyone's fancy, that's why they should uh, listen. And if not, that's OK, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, you there's a lot of squishy stuff in there, right? Some folks would say there's a lot of squ- a lot of feeling stuff in there, a lot of headspace stuff in there. Uh, but I will tell you that your your post, what, what caused me to reach out and say, could you could you please join us on the show and chat a little bit? Your post was when you said, look, I've been a DEI leader uh, for a very long time. And I just can't do it anymore. And it, you weren't fit, right? These were your words. I, I'm not fit to be in this role anymore. And that seemed to me, I read that a couple of times. It seemed to me be very honest um, confession of it's, t- you know, when it's time to pass the baton or time to leave. Can you, and for those who haven't read it, we'll put a link in the, in the post show, but for those who haven't read it, can you kind of give us sort of an overview of how did you get to a point where you said, I can't do this anymore, or it's not good for me, or it's not good for them? Oh, such a big question, isn't it? And that was an article that I put a lot of heart and soul into. And I'm actually writing a second piece that will be elsewhere. So if folks are interested in, in uh, following me, they'll, they'll see that when that comes out. I'm shopping it around. Um, but as I talk about in the piece, it was a slow moving realization that inconveniently started around about the time I did my TEDx talk, um, diversity is necessary for human evolution in 2012. And there were a number of things that occurred around the same time. There was the murder of Trayvon Martin and then the um, acquittal of his killer, George Zimmerman. And there were a couple incidents here locally that really gave me pause and um, just, it's one thing to hear your elders talk about what's happened in the past and cycles repeating. It's quite another visceral experience to see it for yourself. And um, 
you know, integrity is my highest personal and professional value. And, you know, I have been concerned about racism, sexism, and oppression since I was a child and homophobia. So I've been on this journey personally, professionally, and academically, academically to sort of understand racism and oppression, do my personal work so that I don't add to the harm myself hmm. and try to facilitate and equip others to also go, particularly white people, to also go on that journey. And the piece that you referred to was actually the resu unexpected result of a brainstorm with my brilliant editor over there at TLNT, Vadim Lieberman, who is the self-described Liberace of HR and is quite a cutting edge, fantastic human and cutting edge thinker. And we were initially talking about an article about burnout. Like, how do I know that I'm just tired or burned out? Like, is this a temporary, I'm sort of stressed out. I need to go to Cancun and just, you know, lay in the, in the cabana for a week or do yeah. I need to say peace out? And it ended up being that, but it ended up being sort of also my coming out around, I'm, I'm officially, I used DEI in my journey as an example of burnout and my sort of initial public coming out around, I'm leaving the field after 30 years. Now the field's not leaving me. Um, once one has an equity, inclusion and anti-racist, anti-oppression lens, I don't think that ever leaves. And it's certainly embedded into all the work I do but no more working with organizations to try to move the needle. Was there a trigger for you? Like, a, or was it just a series of small things where you said, I, I'm re it's time for me to read my own signs? Great question. I mean, I'm here in California, so I'll use an earthquake metaphor. It wasn't like the big one hit. It was like we had several, there were several serious shocks where it was like, you know, I need to leave this building because it's not, it's gonna fall down in the next earthquake. So I use the words not fit for duty, you know, which mm -hmm. comes from sort of law enforcement and healthcare. And the three points I make in the article is that I realized, first of all, that I've experienced too much harm. And that's important to really let sink in because while I do have marginalized identities, they're not visible ones except for my gender. So I get to navigate the world in a white cishet body. And yet I still have experienced so much harm that my nervous system is no longer able to recover in a way that I can show up for my clients and for, you know, the people I love outside of work. Um, so the harm was too much, too great and too ongoing for yeah. me to be able to really fully show up and be in integrity. The second was that I was causing too much harm. So well, there's talk, this talk, a, talk a little bit about that, please. Sure, sure, Chris. Um, and this requires a lot of courage to even notice, much less say out loud, you know, that there's the saying hurt people hurt people. Mm. And while I, I don't think anyone that knows me well, or and most of my clients would say I'm not conscientious, I, I'm, I'm known for being maybe conscientious almost to a fault, <laughs> and very meticulous and detail oriented and empathic and all those things that you picked up on. I was starting to notice that my uh, unprocessed accumulated anger, mm -hmm. frustration, pain, and grief was starting to bleed over in ways that I was just increasingly frustrated, particularly with white people, particularly with um, organizations in not being willing or able to do the work that's needed and finding myself starting to do, starting to lash out a little bit in really indirect ways some subtle, some overt, when I realized, you know what, any good that I might do as a consultant 
on a DEI project might be balanced out by this negative energy of anger and grief that I'm carrying around. Um, and the third reason, Chris, in the article was that, you know, I'm an imposter. It's a tough one, Susanna, because you talk about there are people who function uh, quite successfully with this imposter syndrome, right, and have a really hard time with it, and yet are not. They are exactly where they should be, where they have earned to be. But when when you say I'm an imposter, I mean, are you? And we haven't talked about this. Are you? Are you? Are you proclaiming that you're in a role or a position or a state where you shouldn't have been, or that you just you you couldn't somehow quantify how you got there? That's a great question, way to frame it. I would say more the former than the latter, Chris. And for those of you that are listening, I want you to kind of notice what showed up for you when you heard me say I'm an imposter, because that's something that can really bring stuff up for people. And those feelings and sensations always point to some invitation to awareness or personal work or something like that. Because yes, there has been, to your point, there has been a lot said and written about imposter syndrome in the last several years. As a transformational wisdom coach, I attract a lot of clients, particularly mid-level and senior leaders that are people of color and or women and or queer that are dealing with imposter syndrome. But the problem with the way imposter syndrome has gotten talked about is whether consciously or unconsciously, it's usually been framed as you know, people of color and women and queer folk somehow have lower self-esteem and we need to help them have better self-esteem and sort of, you know, get the mentoring or the confidence that they need to be successful. When actually there's some new thought leadership coming out, which I think is more uh, truthful, which is there's a reason that people with marginalized identities like women, queer, uh, people of color Mm -hmm. feel like imposters because we're constantly being given messages, mostly unintentional, um, that we don't belong. But rarely is the question ever asked, do you belong? So I find that a lot of us sometimes get on these tracks in the corporate world in particular to sort of prove something to themselves or someone else, usually not consciously, when, you know, just because you can doesn't mean you should. Hmm. Now, and I have to say there's some generational privilege here. As a Gen Xer, I can sort of say that, whereas for boomers, it was more a matter maybe of survival. Like, I'm going to break down that racist curtain. I'm going to break, bust that glass ceiling because, holy cow, something, someone needs to do something and I can. Like, thank you, you know, um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Thank you, you know, all the people that, you know, really found the support the tenacity, whatever, you know, the grit, all those, you know, um, words we like to throw around to do that. And now I think with Gen Xers and millennials, we can also kind of now thank those elders and those ancestors and pause and go, but do I really belong here? Now, do I belong in the fight and the vision and the creativity around creating a world that works better for more of us? Absolutely. That's been me since I can, as long as I can remember, that's going to be me till I die. But being a DEI consultant in organizations that are facing unprecedented and unmanageable stressors and and system change? Absolutely not. I'm not the right person. That doesn't mean that someone else might be. My my choices are a statement about my life. They're not a statement about anybody else's, but I would not be an effective change agent if I didn't do my personal work, look at it and go, you know what? it's time for me to step back. It's time for me to do something different. 
um, still hold on to the values and the goals and the vision, but not do it like this because I'm causing harm and it's hurting me. And if it's hurting me too much, then it's hurting the world. Yeah, maybe maybe just time to move to another channel. Same mission, right? Yeah. Same goals, but but move Same to another station. channel to do that work. Yeah. 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 Wow. To, to quote to quote the uh, the wise one Beavis, this sucks. Change it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, change it. We got, I got to change the channel, change the frequency. So, Susanna, the, it's funny that, that we sort of veered off in in this direction. But I, you know, in the last, I think since we've spoken, maybe about a month ago, I think I have had well, just in the last two weeks, I've had at least two conversations with um, heads of talent who who all but break down in tears because they are tired. They are just exhausted and they and and they see it in their teams i think the first one started with a with an executive just venting that their people are just screwing up dumb mistakes uh unavailable can't reach them you know just just misstep after misstep that's out of character or that would have been out of character maybe two years ago and then the call ends with this some level of self-reflection saying well well shit maybe it's me that's exhausted. And maybe it's me that has my, my patience or my uh, affinity to be able to sort of listen better and help lean in and coach has been shortened, right? Um, are you seeing the same thing? I would imagine. Are you seeing the same thing across the board? Is this just a big red flag that nobody, and it's a really, I'm speaking in absolutes, but that nobody is doing anything about for these leaders? Oh, Nobody's getting a, a shitload of and more just, budget. No, nobody's getting no. a ton of more staff, but they are getting no. asked to do more work. They are tired. They are like, are you seeing the same thing? Are you seeing something different? So, first of all, I just I just felt that in my body when you said that. My empathy and my grief and my anger. Um anger's a good one. Just, it, does, it makes me angry. Yeah, yeah. And it should. And, and let me tell, let me say why. First of all, my, my bias, my context, my perspective here is that when I say 30 years in DEI, I've done that as a consultant with my own businesses. I've done that as a principal with a large corporate consulting firm. I've done that as an employee and I've done it as an internal leader in a 6,000 person organization in healthcare. Okay. So I've come at this from multiple sectors and multiple roles. And what I want to say is what is emblazoned across the header of my, the website of my current company, which is you're not bad, you're not crazy, and you're not alone. Mm. And here are the two things that no one is telling these leaders. First of all, we are right now facing tremendous, as I was kind of alluding to earlier, tremendous systemic pressures. Mm -hmm. We are now facing the music. The chickens are coming home to roost after decades of not investing in organizations, people, families, communities. We are right now, and, and you know, I see this across the board. So yes, again, not bad, not crazy, not alone. People across the board, whether they're frontline employees or executives, are being asked to do the jobs of two to three people yeah. for the pay of one at the pay rate of the 80s. So let's just talk about that. The expectations are inhumane and impossible. 
Mm. And people are feeling that, but they, we are told that it's us. The United States is a very individualistic culture. And I'm not saying that in any judgment, good or bad way. I'm just stating anecdotally, as well as research, that's how we're oriented. So we think the problem and therefore the solution lies and resides in the individual. So that's the first thing I would say to you and to folks is that there are tremendous systemic long-term uh, pressures that are coming home to roost and that we are feeling in our bodies. And that takes me to the second thing that people are not saying is that the human nervous system is genius. Human beings are not designed to be working like dogs mm. 60 hours a week doing multiple things with hundreds of different other human beings, not eating fresh nourishing food that was prepared by someone that we love, not being on devices who are really designed to keep us on the device. Um, we are experiencing a tremendous, what's called allostatic load for our nervous systems that we cannot manage. And particularly in the last two years, I love that you said that, Adding on a global pandemic, waves of global pandemics that have also um, disconnected us from touch, from mm -hmm. community, from even being able to see people's faces is tremendously debilitating. And when the human nervous system, and this is where I'm going to geek out on somatics and then I'll stop my fire hose. <laughs> when the hu human beings have a, a seven to eight different stress responses as mammals, as primates, and as highly social species. And four of those are freeze states, which are an extreme response to threat that our nervous system goes into without our awareness, knowledge, permission, and even an emotion. And if our bodies go into some form of a freeze threat, freeze state, first of all, we're numbed out, we're disappearing, we're checked out. So of course people are gonna forget stuff. They're already dealing with too much. And then when we start to come out of a freeze state and thaw, our bodies have to go through activation before we reach calm. And that's where a lot of conflict, a lot of acting out starts to take place. I know a lot of my HR colleagues are seeing complaints and crazy acting out behavior like never before. Why? Because the human nervous system is starting to thaw from those extreme stress states. So we are asking way too much of people in organizations. And we're also asking way too much from our workplaces. We are now expecting our workplaces not just to give us money so that we can have our basic physical needs met, but we're also looking for all these psychosocial and emotional needs to be met, like belonging, like purpose, like meaning that the workplace was never designed to meet. Yeah. It's just too much. Wow. Well, look, uh, Susanna, I feel like I could talk to you for three hours and <laughs> just, just on this piece alone, but let me... Let's, um, I know we're, we're running up on time. We try to keep yeah. these pretty brief, but um, let, let me ask you, is there, is there something that you would give a uh, word, word of advice or snippet that you would give to the leaders who are listening to maybe help recognize that, that pattern, right? Or, 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 or just something to watch out for. And it, or if they feel it coming, what, what should they do? Is there just one sort of one thing you would sort of advise or give to them as a takeaway from today? Man, one is tough. But I, I guess I'll, I guess I'll say what I'm, what some of my coaching clients are working on right now, which seems to be important, is to start to discern your yes and your no. In you, 
-hmm. Like aside from what anyone else says, whether they're a family member or your boss or your team, where's your yes and your no? And how do you know that in your body? Your body never lies. And how can you get curious then about the sources of those yeses and nos? Is it coming from that wisdom, from that abundant internal wisdom that we have? Or is it coming from a story that we've internalized or adopted from our culture that actually may not be serving us in that moment? So that's deep and nuanced work that a, an effective professional coach or therapist can help untangle, mm. starting to discern where's your yes and no, and how do you personally in your body gauge that? Um, you know, just off the cuff, Chris, you know, is probably where I might invite folks to start. Fantastic. Look, we don't normally do this. We don't, we don't let anybody do a plug, but Susanna, this is, this is a hot topic. I think this is what Jerry and I have talked about. We talk with leaders about all the time. You mentioned uh, your website uh, and you were also pro to, to not drop a link in there, but let me ask you, do you have a URL or do you have something you want to send people to if they want to find out more information about Ms. Rinderlay, if they want to learn a little bit more about what you do and maybe talk to you directly? Oh, sure. And thank you for that invitation, Chris. I would be here even without that. Um, that generosity. But yes, my website is wordswisdomwellness.com. I love it. And you can also Google my name and find my YouTube channel and social media as well. Awesome. Thanks. Yeah. Look, for those who are on the podcast, uh, be sure that you uh, continue to subscribe or add that like or whatever channel that you're on. But uh, we do these live streamed to YouTube every week. Uh, and we go ahead and uh, send them out. I think after post, we put these fancy bumpers on them. Uh, we send them out to post anywhere that you subscribe, but you can find more information at cxr.org slash podcast. And if you're interested in checking out what we've got uh, going on in the events space, uh, we've got some members only uh, content going on out there, a new lecture series. We're kicking off our second one coming up on empathy, interestingly enough. Uh, and then we've also got some things that we're doing open to the public book club, happy hour, that sort of thing. You can see all of that out at cxr.org's events. Susanna, thank you again so much for joining us. We're really, really grateful for the time you've given to everybody that's dialed in. Honored, and thank you so much for, for inviting me and to the rest of you for listening. You bet. Thanks for listening to the CXR channel. Please subscribe to CXR on your favorite podcast resource and leave us a review while you're at it. Learn more about CXR at our website, cxr.works, facebook.com and twitter.com slash career crossroads and on Instagram at career X roads. We'll catch you next time. Oh,